Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. From Backpage, I'm Martin Gregg, and this is Between the Lines, a podcast telling the stories behind great sports writing. And we ended up in the Cambridge, which is a horrible pub in uh, Soho, Cambridge Circus. And uh, so I'm sitting there drinking and having a really good time with Nick Hornby and Hugh McElvenny. And, you know, there I was 24 years old, bankrupt until an hour ago. <laughs> Top of the world. In 1994, Simon Cooper won the William Hill Sportsbook of the Year Award for his first title, Football Against the Enemy. Simon was a young journalism student when he won the award and tells us how he barely had the bus fare to attend the ceremony in London. He visited 22 countries on a tiny budget, digging into the effects football can have on politics and culture and why different countries play the game so differently. It's a brilliant book with some crazy stories. From the East Berliner, who was persecuted by the Stasi for supporting his local team, to World Cup 90 legend Roger Miller, who imprisoned 120 pygmies from the Cameroonian rainforest during a charity tournament. Yes, that actually happened. The Times says, if you like football, read it. If you don't like football, read it. This interview was recorded in Berlin more than 20 years after the book's publication. I mean, it almost feels like a book I didn't write it so long ago. It's almost another lifetime. I remember I finished it the night of September 5th, 1993, at about 2 a.m., which was, you know, way after the publisher's deadline. And I was moving to the U.S. for a year to study the next morning. So I remember printing it out and the pages coming off the printer. And um, I didn't have time to go to the publisher and bring in the manuscript, which is what you did in those days. And so I commissioned my sister to carry it to the publisher in London. And uh, I got on a plane to the States. So um, those, it was a different world. And you have on the table here, you have, uh, I think, the first paperback. Mm-hmm. It came out in hardback. And then uh, late 94, it came out in paperback with Frank Leicard and Rudy Fuller on the cover. And when I see that, I'm jerked back 20 years in time to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the young me. I mean, it's a book that's almost invented a genre if you like where did the idea for the book first come from where, where did it um, emerge from what what forces came together to, to lead you to, to this journey not just because you're Scott but I remember I was listening to a BBC radio programme this would have been about 1990 about Northern Ireland and how around the Celtic Rangers game uh sectarian tensions in Northern Ireland would hot up between Protestants and Catholics because, um, of course, the Protestant Northern Ireland supported Rangers, the Catholics supported uh, Celtic, and they'd actually take the ferry over and they had separate ferries, otherwise they'd beat each other up. And um, after the game, you know, whoever lost would be not very happy about it. And it was a big issue for the British police at the time in Northern Ireland and the, and the military. And I thought, wow, you know, so these uh, football, which was then a very ignored topic by serious people, if you like, by uh, non-sports journalists, by academics, uh, by policymakers. I thought, wow, football can really actually do things in a society. And I'd also had this other founding experience in 1988. Um, you know, I grew up in Holland, so I supported Holland. And in '88, Holland beat Germany in the European Championship semi-final. And for me, it was 
the best football match best football feeling I've ever had in my mm. life yeah. and it was also true of most Dutch people so millions of people went out onto the street mm. on a Tuesday night they began throwing bicycles in the air saying we have our bikes back because the Germans had impounded Dutch mm. bicycles through the war mm. and all the reception of the match by the Dutch was about World War II yeah. and this was in 1988 mm. and I thought wow so football can really release these dormant feelings that Dutch people had about Germany in a way that nothing else can yeah. so put those experiences together and also being the son of an anthropologist I sort of naturally look at things anthropologically so I looked at football as an anthropologist as it were as a kind of weird culture that needed to be studied although mm. I was also player, you know, amateur player and a fan. So I loved the game, but I also saw it from the outside. So putting all those things together, I thought, wouldn't it be great to write a book about the role of football in different countries around the world, which was a crazily overambitious project. I mean, I'd never written a book before. Mm. And um, I was 21 when I sold the contract, to, sold the book to a publisher. And so, and often while I was going abroad, going around, a, you know, I'd be sitting in a youth hostel in Estonia or Buenos Aires mm-hmm. and thinking, this is too much for me, uh, you know, I, shouldn't, I yeah. shouldn't have done this, uh, there's no way I can write this book, or you arrive in Brazil, and you only have a week in Brazil, and you have this hugely limited budget, you know, I was travelling with a rucksack, and for a while I was travelling with a typewriter in the rucksack, because I wanted to write freelance articles on my typewriter and sell them back home as a way of mm-hmm. making money, didn't sell any. And... Um, you know, so I, I, I had a week in Brazil, couldn't extend it because I had the ticket. And after five days, I hadn't had any interviews, I hadn't met anyone, didn't know what to say. And I thought, I'm going to write a book about football culture around the world and there won't be a Brazil chapter. And then I met this guy and he gave me the story and it was great. But I thought, but um, there was that enormous anxiety that I felt uh, pretty much all the time. And then I thought it's going to be published and the reviews are going to say, oh, this is a rubbish book. And my friends will read the reviews and I'll be humiliated. Uh, and the opposite happens. Well, no, actually it did happen. The Sunday <laughs> Times, uh, one of the very first reviews was in the Sunday Times uh, by Terence Black, I'll never forget. And he, um, he did something which I thought was quite unfair. He obviously didn't like the book, which is fair enough. Didn't think it was good, fair enough. And he used the review to kind of crack some jokes, you know, be witty uh, at my expense, so that the review was very real, as bad reviews tend to be. Uh, for me, it was deeply hurtful and upsetting. And the Sunday Times in those days was a very big newspaper, so people read it. So um, I was crushed. But then later, good reviews started to come out. So, you know, that wore off. But, um, yeah, I felt very, very sensitive. Mm. So, so the, the initial reaction to the book, you mean, I, I read a review the other day um, from Richard Williams, I think was in The Independent. Um, but was it a, a slow-burning thing? Did, it, did, did it people gradually latch on to what, what you'd done with the book and then... And then gathered momentum from there um, it obviously wasn't a, an instant hit in that sense um, I mean it came out just before the World Cup 94 and um, England wasn't playing, I don't think any of the home countries were in the World Cup so it was um, there wasn't much for the British media to latch on to and so my book was one of the few books that came out then about football so it got, it got coverage, it got reviews and mostly they were positive and I remember I was going around um, I did this radio day in London and I went around with the publicist um, and I said to her, I'm really worried that the radio program is going to be nasty and attack the book and the reviewers will attack the book. And she said, everyone's going to like your book. And I said, why? You haven't read the book. How do you know? And she said, I haven't read the book, but you don't have any enemies. You're young, you've never worked in the media, you don't know anyone. So, you know, a young person has written a book. Isn't that nice? And that was exactly the reception. You know, people said this is a nice, young, fresh book. So mostly, apart from the Sunday Times, it was well-received. 
um, but it obviously wasn't huge. But I remember late that summer seeing my publisher, Bill Massey, at Hodder and Stan- no, at Orion. And um, Bill said, yeah, it's done well, we're, we're going to do a paperback. I thought, yeah, that means that it hasn't failed. Mm. And that was the kind of bar set, it hadn't failed. And then when it took off was in November, uh, it was nominated for the William Hill Prize. And um, the FT, I just joined the FT, and they sent me on a journalism course in Hastings, which was the world's worst journalism course. It was very depressing, and you were t- treated like children, mm. and uh, it was horrible. And I'd already bunked off a couple of times, and then I said to the people who ran the course, Look, I have to go to London because my book's been nominated for the William Hill, um, and there's due for the shortlist people mm. in Sports Pages Bookshop. They said, yeah, well, you, you've missed some time here already. You can't go. And I said, please. And they let me go very reluctantly. And I told myself, look, your book's obviously not going to win, but you get out of here, you have a day in London. It's going to be great. You know? And um, so I was standing in the bookshop, and Matthew Engel was the chief of the jury. And he started saying, you know, uh, many good entries this year, et cetera, et cetera. And I was saying, okay, it's not going to be you. Don't worry about it. And he said, but the winning book is a, a fresh, young book. And those were the key words that were always used at the time. And I thought, hang on a second. And then he said, uh, football game enemy has won the prize. And I went up and I shook his hand and I uh, said it couldn't have happened to a poorer man. Because I was in Hastings, the FC, paying me a kind of um, student journalist salary of about, I think I got £150 a week, which even in 1994 was not very much money. And I just, I just was completely bankrupt. I had nothing. Mm. Um, you know, just, just taking the bus was, can I afford to take the bus? And um, suddenly he gave me this cheque for 3,500 quid. It's more money than I'd ever had in my life. So I went from having nothing to having 3,500 quid. Mm-hmm. And um, then Nick Hornby was there and Hugh McElvenny, you know, various people. But to me, they were just kind of greats and legends. And we ended up in the Cambridge, which is a horrible pub in uh, Soho, Cambridge Circus. And uh, so I'm sitting there drinking and having a really good time with Nick Hornby and Hugh McIlvenny. And, you know, I was 24 years old, bankrupt until an hour ago. <laughs> Top of the world. Yeah. And um, then I got the train back to Hastings. And on Wednesday night, all our student journalists would gather in the bar in the pub. It was our weekly night out. And I came in and I said, drinks are on me. <laughs> <laughs> and they heard it on Radio 5. So everyone was really pleased with it. Nice. And I put, uh, I think I put 40 quid behind the bar, which I'd never been able to do in my life. And drinks were on me. So I remember that day very clearly. And then it was, the William Hill's brilliantly timed, it's in November, so it's time enough to catch the Christmas rush. Right. So uh, the November through Christmas period, the book just sold. Mm. And I think I read once that Sports Pages sold 800 copies of it in the week before Christmas, Sports Pages Bookshop alone. Mm. So, um, you know. I mean, the, the money uh, aspect is quite interesting because rereading the book in the past week or so, um, it, there's, a, there's a great romance associated with the fact that you, you did this in a pretty small budget. You were staying in youth hostels, um, you were bribing your way onto flights um, for, for very little money. Um, I mean, that must have been a, an incredible life experience apart from anything else for a, a 22, 23-year-old to be travelling around the world, doing it on, on a shoestring, um, a very formative experience, well, I'd imagine. Say, you say it was an incredible life experience. It was just bloody hard. I mean... <laughs> Um, how do you get from one side of Buenos Aires to the other mm. when you've never been there and you can't afford a taxi? Mm. That that kind of thing. Mm. Or um, you meet someone and he works for Dynamo Kiev and he's going to tell you really interesting things, but he suggests that you have a, bar, a beer in the Interest bar. Mm. And you realise you're going to have to pay for the beer, which is probably $5. Mm. 
and you think, right, okay, I'm just going to drink mine really slowly, and I hope he only orders one. <laughs> that that seems to be, um, I think, part of the, the charm of the book. There's this travelogue element to it, and it's something that I really enjoyed rereading it again. And um, it's very finely balanced. I mean, obviously, there's a um, a very interesting perspective on the, um, you know, you, you touched on the kind of anthropological elements of how you approached it but it's a great travelogue but there's, there's great football in there as well you, you, you never lose sight of the fact that this is a rollicking football tale and a really good travel story and obviously you attach these other elements to it or you're coming from that place but did you try and balance out all these elements as you as you wrote it? I had so many travelogue stories that I didn't put in because it would have just overwhelmed the book mm. um you know, you're going around all day, you're meeting all sorts of people. Uh, I could have written two books about that. And I probably should have put in more. I remember I wrote a Moscow chapter, and I sent it to this friend I'd, uh, I'd met in Moscow, and she'd helped me around. She'd show me people, some British journalists doing that. And she said, this whole chapter is just about football. She said, I think you should put in some stuff that happened to you in Moscow. People would be interested in that. She said, like, remember when we went to that party and we got a lift home in an ambulance? because mm. we'd, uh, we'd done what people in Russia do, but I'd never had that experience before. You hitchhike, and an ambulance had stopped for us. Yeah. And uh, we paid them a dollar, and they took us home. So I put, I think that, that's in the opening. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it was... I had to remember that I'd actually been there and had to put the colour in and not make it a kind of too academic-y mm. book, because... I think I, I wanted to make it this... I, I just graduated from university, so I read a lot of history, and I wanted to make it in a more academic genre initially mm-hmm. and I remember I met this anthropologist colleague of my dad's in South Africa and I told him where I'd been and what I got and I said what this proves is the role of football in societies is X and he said to me he said I think you've had a lot of interesting experiences mm-hmm. and you've met interesting people and you should write about that and he said don't be too keen to impose a big theory on it mm-hmm. and that was very good advice so I, I retracted from kind of being this big theory maker about football and politics mm-hmm. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's an interesting line at the end of the Barcelona chapter where you go through the political and social forces associated with that city and that club and then at the end of it, there's a line, something like, some people just watch it because they like the football as well and it's, it's quite a powerful line actually because that's I think the book always comes back to that and, and I think that's a great part of its success but um, I'm just I'm, I'm looking at uh, the start of chapter 5 which is titled The Secret Police Chief at Left Half um, and the intro on my first night in Moscow I went to a party and came home in an ambulance not that there was anything wrong with me just that Russian doctors earn about $12 a month and for a couple of dollars will happily take you wherever you want to go at 2 in the morning I sometimes wonder whether my ambulance had been heading for an emergency. 
I mean, that, that's just gold when you come across that stuff. That's the kind of thing that happens if you go around the world with very little money. You have more interesting experiences. I mean, we're talking now in the lobby of a probably a five-star Berlin hotel where mm-hmm. I'm staying for a conference. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now that I'm middle-aged, my travel is much more upmarket. Mm-hmm. And you have mu- you have many fewer interesting, remarkable experiences because in a lobby of an international hotel, you meet you know middle-aged people like yourself, and it's not uh, you're not out there on the street in the way that I was in Buenos Aires, where you're mm-hmm. you're trying to get across town and somebody helps you, and you meet that person. So um, yeah, I mean, getting home in ambulances is something I wouldn't do nowadays. So in fact, I could only have written the book age 22 I couldn't have written in after that you talk about how much of a slog it was but um, but was it fun fun as well did you was it elements that you look back on fondly characters places I mean when you reflect back in that journey what jumps out for you what, what are the, the places or the, the people that you, you'll never forget I mean I was captivated by Buenos Aires I thought you know I'd never expected to get to South America in my life and Suddenly, age 23, I'm, I'm in Buenos Aires, and I'm thinking, wow, this is a really, really brilliant place, and it's very recognisably European, and so many fascinating things. There's, sometimes you'd have a day where you... I always thought, if I get an interview and it's good and it's going to make the book, that's three or four more pages, because mm. I worried I wouldn't have enough pages. And so the moments of elation professionally were... Like, I met this Argentine general, this crazy old bloke who'd written a book about football tactics, and... You know, I tried to talk to him about the dictatorship in football, and he just wanted to talk about football tactics. And he'd, his ideas of football tactics were all drawn from military campaigns, pre 19th century ones. <laughs> and I came away and I thought, that's definitely three pages. Or I, um, I went up to Roger Miller in Cameroon and I said, Can I have an interview? And he said, Yeah. And turned up the next day, and to my surprise, he was there. And he gave me a good interview. And I, thought, I went away thinking, Yeah, yeah, you know, I've justified coming to Cameroon. Yeah. So um, those are moments of elation. And I mean, I still. Um, I met some people because you're young, you have time who I'm still in touch with I'm going to stay in Dublin next week with a friend who I met in Barcelona when I was doing that chapter in 1992 mm-hmm. so you do, do build kind of enduring connections yeah. But one of the things that struck me going back and rereading the book was um, in terms of the timing um, you were going to really interesting places at really interesting times. You know, the breakup of the USSR, um, not long after the wall comes down in Germany. Um, I mean, what else? There was uh, Ukraine, which is opening itself up to, to the West. I thought that was a fascinating chapter. Even from a footballing point of view, Cameroon post-World Cup 90, um, Barca post-92, where the, the Dream Team had won the European Cup and then the, 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 the Spanish team had won the gold medal in the Olympics. Um, were you aware that when you were travelling around that, you know, you thinking to yourself, well, I, I couldn't have come at a better time in a sense that the forces were, were changing in society and politically as well? And I think it was the year the Sky Deal was done for the Premier League, so mm. that's when English football... Mm. With hindsight, that's when English football, you know, skyrocketed into this financial phenomenon. Um, I mean, I was young, I didn't know any better. Uh, For me, the most exciting time was already two years, three years before, the 1989-1990 winter when the Berlin Wall fell, all of Eastern Europe opened up, Nelson Mandela walked out of jail. So for me, I was already in the kind of post-romantic afterglow. Mm. Um, I mean, with hindsight, yeah, it was a time when the world was changing. And I was lucky to go then. It was also a time when different countries were really quite different. Um, whereas now, 
there is a lot more homogeneity in football as well because now if you go to Cameroon they watch Manchester United so whereas when I went to Cameroon they had their own very distinct football culture yeah the, the Cameroon chapter was was fascinating in this character of Roger Mila which people of my generation and, and yours will remember so fondly from that World Cup um, he, he must have been an outstanding character. I mean, some of the stories, I had to reread some passages to, to um, make sure that, um, you know, I, I almost couldn't believe um, some of the things he was involved in. Um, what what did you have a tournament with pygmies and he kept the pygmies captive? It, That's what I was leading to. Yeah. <laughs> he, he organised a tournament in Cameroon to promote the kind of well being of Cameroonian pygmies who are very discriminated against. And um, so he brought a team of pygmies to own day the capital and then he locked them up in the stadium cellars and didn't feed them. And they were, the pygmies were only allowed out for matches and they um, complained. And I actually I found out about this months after Cameroon because I was, um, I'd met Mila and had a, I thought quite a good interview with him. And I was telling this American journalist in California, you know, I, I met Mila and he said, Did you hear the one about Mila and the pygmies? And I said, No. And he told me the story and then later he faxed me the Reuters story where he'd read it. Reuters had reported on it, nobody had really picked it up. And so um, that was uh, that was my uh, that Reuters fax was the source of my Pygmies story. Um, and Miller, I think, was a slightly frustrated old man because he'd had a very mediocre club career in France. Yeah. And as a black man in France, hadn't been treated very well, hadn't known very much money, he wasn't very well known. And then age 38, he suddenly becomes the star of the World Cup and then his career is over anyway and he's never made any money and he's sitting there in Cameroon thinking yeah but nobody ever paid I'm like Pelé and nobody ever paid me so he was um, slightly bitter I think one of the the interesting aspects of the book is you seem to approach it from an outsider's perspective you weren't somebody that was um, part of football culture then you weren't a working journalist I don't think you were, it, was, it was before all that and I thought that brought a great freshness to it that you, you don't have don't have that baggage you're coming from it um, do you think reflecting back in that 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 was important that you were at that stage of your, your, your life and your career that you had that detached point of view my journalism experiences is I age 16 I'd begun writing for World Soccer because I'd grown up in Holland so I spoke Dutch and I got them to take a monthly piece from me on what's happening in Dutch football which I'd get from reading the Dutch press and I'd send it in an envelope I'd post it to the editor every month and he'd pay me 35 quid or something which is really good money for me as a teenager and um but I'd never actually met a footballer when I began the book I'd never met a footballer or a manager I'd never been in that world so the first couple of times I was very you know, overwhelmed meeting Roger Miller and meeting Bobby Charlton. It was, it was big time. And, yeah, I did see it totally from the outside because um, a lot of sports journalists, as you know, uh, they try to become like the sports people. They try to dress like them, talk like them, you know, the hero worship, but trying to be matey. And they move in that world so long that they think it's totally normal, they can't see it from the outside. So if you cover Manchester United, you go to an Alex Ferguson press conference every day for 15 years, and that, that's your world. Mm. And I was, yeah, I, I, it was like I'd come from the moon. I, I, I didn't know how any of this worked. Mm. And I noticed the way they dressed. You know, in football, you have to exude wealth and power through your clothing. And um, I'd never seen that before. I mean, I'd, my life experience had been among students. And students in Britain 25 years ago, everyone dressed scru- scruffy. And I was very scruffy and I was very poor and I was travelling the world, you know, with my clothes in a rucksack. So me coming 
to me, the football person was always a bit of a, a shock for them. Who is, who is this student who's pretending to be a sports yeah. journalist? And I remember I met this one Italian sports editor, very charming guy. Uh, I, I'd been reduced to interviewing a, a journalist because there was no chance I could interview anyone in football. And he said to me, so how long have you been a journalist? And I went, and I was thinking, well, I'm not really a journalist, but what do I say here? And he said, one day. <laughs> I think one of the interesting themes of the book is, is debunking myths and, and lazy stereotypes uh, which surround football. And I wonder if that was something you set out to do intentionally or as you were going along when you found out the realities of situations. I mean, the, the, the first chapter is... Is fascinating in itself. The reflections on the um, Holland Germany game '88. Um, when you peel back the layers of that, the story is actually the narrative is very different from what yeah. most people would would think. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I came into that thinking, well, the Dutch had always hated the Germans, and in 1988 it all came out. And then when I started to read about the 1974 World Cup final, also between Holland and West Germany. I realised that around in the '74, in the coverage, because I, I went to a Dutch newspaper office, I read back newspapers. '74, there was no anti-German sentiment, and the players in their interviews were, you know, Germans, good guys, they're like us. Um, mm-hmm. They had a post-match banquet with the players, and uh, the Dutch and German players all got very angry because their wives were excluded. It was men only, mm-hmm. so Dutch and German players are standing together at the entrance, saying, "Yeah, my wife, she's allowed in." And um, FIFA had forbidden them to swap shirts on the field after the final. So at the banquet, I think Johnny Rep and Paul Breitner swapped jackets as a kind of symbolic gesture. And, um, so, and you know, the, I think the Dutch felt that the German players at Central were very like them. They were kind of um, anti-establishment, young generation that wanted to take control. Beckermeyer was the German curve. And I realised in 88, the war had been dug up for the first time. Dutch people hadn't really talked about the war and talked about the Germans for 40 years. And um, so I realised when I began to dig that the story was much more complicated, the Dutch-German story is much more complicated than I'd recognised. And now, in fact, the Dutch-German story is the Dutch recognised, you know what, we're kind of German. We're today in 2014. um, The Dutch have belatedly admitted to themselves, we are so similar to these people. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's a very complex relationship. And I think because I'd just done a history degree, I'd been taught to, to dig and to discard myths and to distrust what people say about themselves. So Dutch people then would say, you know, I've always hated Germans, we were all in the resistance. And uh, any historian would say, hmm, you know, um, I wonder what it was really like. So I think I was writing partly as a, as a kind of university-educated historian, not, not a professional historian, but semi-professional, let's say. Stuff in African football as well and... So many stereotypes exist within that as well. You know, witchcraft. When you spend a bit of time in that, it's really interesting. When you you peel back the layers in that, and it's 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 really it's not like the perception would be um, the kind of you know the lazy perception that we have perhaps. In, well, around nineteen ninety, uh, it was the first time a black African team had done well the World Cup, Cameroon, and. You know, on British TV, uh, people like Ron Atkinson saying, oh, you know, they're natural athletes. They don't really know what they're doing, but they're just having fun. They're really enjoying it. And that, and that narrative still exists. You still hear that rhetoric to this day sometimes. Probably, yeah. yeah. Um, now it's much more combated by uh, kind of critical fans, if you like, by mm. people like when Saturday comes who mm. make fun of that narrative. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, all of us were trying to get used to 
black Africans in international football. It's a new thing. And, um, you know, my dad's an anthropologist of Africa, and any kind of talk like that would drive him completely mad. He hated, mm. hated that way of talking about Africans. Right. And so I think that was educational um, for me. And I'd grown up, my parents had left South Africa, uh, didn't like apartheid at all. Uh, my dad studied, you know, his, his first book was about a black African country, about Botswana. So I was kind of uh, educated to see things more from the black African side, insofar as a white person, mm. a white European, well off white European like myself can, but to distrust those kinds of stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Just returning to the, the, the publication of the book and, and the actual process of selling the book, and, and how did that come about? Did you write a proposal? Did you write a sample chapter? Did you have an agent? Um, how did it, how did it come about? I had the idea for the book probably about 1990, and then in 1991, I won the independent newspaper's student travel writing competition. I had an annual competition, and the prize was um, they published your uh, your article, which in my case was about being mugged in San Francisco, and they gave you a around the world ticket. So I went around the world in 1991. It was great. Uh, it was, I had to go quickly because of university holidays, but anyway, it was great. And when the piece appeared in the independent. I was living in Berlin, actually, right here in March 91. I got two letters, uh, which was very exciting for me. One from Penguin saying, I liked your essay, do you want to write a book? We should talk about it. And another from an agent saying, you know, I liked your essay, maybe I can represent you. So do you have an idea for a book? He asked, and I thought, actually, I do have an idea for a book, football and politics around the world. So I went to see him, and he, to his credit, sold my book to uh, Hodder, and Stoughton for 3,000, I got an advance of 3,500 pounds. Obviously, it wasn't enough to get me around the world, but it was amazing. And um, and then my editor moved from Hodder to Orion to, and took the book with him. So it was through winning the student travel writing competition that the book uh, happened. Obviously, the writing of the book and then the success of the book led you down a certain path. Did that form the template, if you like, for the rest of your career? Did you intend to have the career that you've had? Um, would that have happened without the book? Well, writing a well-received book at the start of your career is the best start in journalism, so I was very lucky mm. that it happened that way. But it led me down the wrong path, Football Against the Enemy, because I didn't want to be a sports writer, and I still don't, because I think there's more important things. I think because if you spend too much around time around football, your brain starts to rot, because a lot of stupid nonsense talks every day and... Um, uh, you know, the referee made a mistake. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. Um, you know, that player let us down. Uh, we need to sack the manager. This incredibly stupid talk that you have to write about if you're a daily journalist covering that. And I, I just wanted to get away from that. And I wanted to write about important things, you know, why people are, some people are poor and other people are rich, why some countries work well and others don't. This is why I joined the Financial Times, which when I joined did zero sport. So I didn't want to be a sports writer. But I ended up at the FT kind of at the bottom and I ended up writing the currency column for two years. And I had these kind of two parallel careers, one at the FT where I was a sad loser, being paid very little, and the other doing freelance football pieces where I was earning more money and getting more respect. And so then in 98, the Observer offered me to become a football columnist, and I did. And, you know, it was fun. um, Writing about football can be fun, but I didn't want to do that. And I thought, five years ago, I thought, I'm going to write about sport my whole life, and it's not really what I wanted. It's all right, but it's not what I wanted. It's a bit disappointing. And then, thank God, in 2010, the FT said to me, do you want to write a general column, not about sport? And um, 
I tried to play hard to get because I wanted them to give me more money but I thought yes the thing I most want is to write a general column not about sport and so now I write a general column not about sport and occasionally I do a sports piece but uh, football against enemy made me into a football writer which is not what I ever planned to become Thanks to Simon for agreeing to this interview, the second in a new series. Keep up with Simon's writing for the Financial Times and follow him on Twitter at CooperSimon. If you like this, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you read a story that you think would make a good feature for the podcast, please let us know on Twitter at Backpage Press or email backpage at backpagepress.co.uk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.